It's my pleasure to be offering the Dharma talk this morning. The topic of my talk is treating mind and spirit as one. I work for a group of counseling centers called the Psychotherapy and Spirituality Institute, and our motto, which appears on our letterhead, is treating mind and spirit as one. It sounds nice, and a lot of people resonate with this idea, but when you try to define what this means, it's not so easy. What do we mean by mind? And what do we mean by spirit? I could spend the whole morning trying to define these two elusive terms, and I don't want to do that. But I will offer just a few cursory definitions and then spend most of the time talking about how the interaction of what we think of as mind and spirit affects our practice and our lives. First, the word mind. If you Google mind, the first definition that comes up is the element of a person that enables them to be aware of the world and their experiences, to think and to feel, the faculty of consciousness. Now we could dissect this and look at it from all kinds of angles, but I think this is a pretty good working definition of mind as we usually use the term. It's the part of me that thinks, feels, and experiences the world. Now how about spirit? If you Google spirit, the definition that comes up first is the non-physical part of a person that is the seat of emotions and character, the soul. Now we could do a lot of unpacking with that one, couldn't we? Maybe we shouldn't accept this definition too quickly, but should look into it a bit. When we talk about our Buddhist practice, we often attach the word spiritual. We talk about our spiritual practice. And we seem to feel that we really understand what we mean by that. But what do we really mean when we use the word spiritual or spirituality? There's been a lot written in recent years about an increasing search for spirituality in this country, about how many people have stopped attending religious services in the faith that they grew up with and are trying to find spirituality in other spiritual traditions, often turning away from Christianity or Judaism toward Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. There have even been terms coined like jubu, for Jews who have become Buddhists. But what is this spirituality that people are seeking? It's a tough question to answer because it's not exactly the same for any two people. We each bring our own experiences to bear on that search. But I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that what this search entails, at least in part, for most spiritual seekers is a hunger for transcendence, for something that transcends the conscious human mind and its limitations, and especially the ego. Something that touches us at a deeper level, that touches, if you will, our spirit or soul. In some instances, this may be a search for God or for some universal principle or reality that gives meaning to the universe and to our existence. In other instances, it may be more a search for something that causes us to feel whole, complete, grounded, at peace. But I would suggest that it clearly is a search for something that transcends the usual, rational, mundane experience. As Buddhists, I think we come to realize that there is an illusion driving this search, the dualistic illusion that mind and spirit, rationality and transcendence are different entities, polar opposites, when in fact, they're part of the same universal reality. But it takes a pretty enlightened person to really understand this unity. 
uh, and to incorporate it into their understanding of themselves and the world. And I don't pretend to have even approached that in my own practice. I can grasp it intellectually, but emotionally it still feels somewhat strange and out of reach. As a psychotherapist, one of the things that has personally helped me to bridge this gap is the psychology of C.G. Jung, and I've mentioned him several times in my Dharma talks. For Jung, the mind is multi-layered, beginning with consciousness, the conscious ego, descending to what he called the personal unconscious, which is the repository of my personal experiences and memories, and then descending more deeply into the realm that he called the collective unconscious which is the realm of universal transforming symbols and myths that are shared by all of humanity at the deepest level. I see a real connection between what Jung called the collective unconscious and what we describe as Buddha nature or the Buddha within, or Irwan Song. And as one descends through the levels of the psyche as Jung describes it, the line between mind and spirit begins to blur and at the deepest level, they seem to merge, and the duality seems to dissolve. Unfortunately, or maybe it's fortunate, I'm not sure, most of us are forced by the limitations of our insight and accumulated wisdom to live within the tension of the duality between mind and spirit, rather than in a state of samadhi or enlightenment. So we struggle with that tension as best we can. When we're involved in the search for spirituality, our conscious mind is constantly looking for answers, for confirmation of transcendence. We have a difficult time, I think, living with doubt and uncertainty, so we tend to grab onto whatever we can that will assuage those doubts. And it's this intolerance for ambiguity, which is very human and normal, that ultimately leads, I think, to religious extremism and fundamentalism. For example, if as a Christian, and I am a Christian as well as a Buddhist, I don't know what you'd call that, Christian Buddhist, Buddhist Christian. <laughs> I could say, as a Christian, I could say, as some do, all the answers are in the Bible. Every word there is written by God, and we need to look no further for any answers. Then I might feel relieved of the burden of ambiguity or doubt, because I would have all the answers. Of course, we all know the problem with that. First of all, if you study the Bible and how it was created and written, you see the hand of man involved in shaping a compendium of documents that reflect the wisdom and biases of different historical contexts and different ethnic groups. And you see irreconcilable contradictions between different passages. There's no escaping that. So if you really use your mind, the logical reasoning part of your mind, you have to suspend logic and wear blinders to accept the fundamentalist position. What's more, those who do try to hold on to that position find themselves having to differentiate between themselves, the bearers of the truth, and everyone else, the doubters, the damned, the unsaved. And it is precisely this kind of position that has led to countless bloody battles and wars throughout history and still today. And of course, fundamentalism is not limited to Christianity. There are fundamentalists in every religion who hang on to some vision of what they see to be the absolute truth and proof of transcendent reality in an attempt to escape, I think, the inevitable ambiguities in the perceived duality between mind and spirit. It's totally understandable why people do this, why they take refuge in 
fundamentalism. Because it's difficult and painful to live with ambiguity and uncertainty. And yet ultimately, I think this is what we all have to learn to do. A very wise teacher of mine in seminary, Dr. Robert Neal, said that he would define maturity as, quote, the ability and willingness to cope with life's inevitable ambiguities. I know I've shared this with you before, but I really like this definition. To be mature is to be able and willing to cope with life's inevitable ambiguities. One of my favorite Christian theologians, Paul Tillich, wrote a wonderful little book called The Dynamics of Faith. And in this book, he states that doubt is an inevitable part of faith. If there were no doubt about what you believe, it would not be faith, it would be knowledge. But since we do not possess knowledge of transcendence, however we may understand that word, transcendence, our spiritual vision, whatever it may be, will always contain a strong element of doubt. And we have to learn, he said, to live and accept doubt as an existential reality of being human. Of course, it's normal and natural that we seek signs of transcendence, transcendence to reassure us, and that's okay, within limits. Part of what makes many of us, and I include myself, susceptible to those who would con us, like many of the fortune tellers whose signs we see throughout the city, is the desire to find proof of transcendence. This same gullible tendency may make us prone to see every coincidence as an example of synchronicity, seeing meaning where there may be no meaning. Just as Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, most of the time a coincidence, however remarkable, is just a coincidence. However, and this is where I hesitate, I do think that there are those rare experiences in our lives that defy any empirical rational explanation. Jung had several such experiences in his life, many of which he relates in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and I highly recommend that book if you haven't read it. It's a nice little, very strange autobiography. Uh, I'll share just a couple of his experiences that he talks about. In one instance, when his grandfather died just before the moment of death, Hundreds of birds flocked to the rooftop of his grandfather's home and sat there silently as if to mark the moment of death. Thirty years later, as Jung's father lay dying in the same house, the same thing occurred again. Hundreds of birds flocked and landed on the roof exactly at the moment of death. Or Jung describes a time when he was involved in a very deep analytic therapy with a woman who had gone through a psychotic break and was struggling to emerge back into sanity. And she was sitting in his office in his home just outside Zurich, which was right next to his garden, describing a powerful dream that involved a scarab beetle, the kind of beetle that you only find in certain parts of North Africa. At a critical moment in her description, Jung heard a light tapping on the window just behind his head and turned to see a scarab beetle tapping on the window, which one almost never sees that far north. And he reached out, took the beetle on his finger, and said, Madame, here is the beetle of your dream. And following that session, the woman became dramatically better. Now, a skeptic might tend to see these experiences and 
other similar ones that Jung relates as coincidences, however extraordinary they may be. But I think many of us reading his accounts would have the impression that something more was happening, something special, something unexplainable. Jung himself felt that when there is tremendous pressure building within the psyche that breaks down the barriers between consciousness and the usually inaccessible collective unconscious, that's when these kinds of extraordinary experiences out of the ordinary experiences are likely to occur. Now, I've had a few such experiences myself, and one in particular that I'd like to share with you. From 1965, God, it can't be that long. From 1965 to 19... <laughs> To 1968, I lived in Antwerp, Belgium, where I was pastor of the American Protestant Church in Antwerp at the time. And one of the members of my church was an older woman, Mrs. Johnson was her name, who spoke to me often about the fact that she was psychic, she was prevoyant, and that her psychic abilities were a source of, a source of much pain to her because she would have these dreams where she would dream how an accident or something horrible was going to happen to somebody, death or an accident, and it usually involved somebody she knew, a member of her family or a friend. And in every instance, this, the dream happened. The, the, the reality occurred days or weeks after the dream, uh, exactly as she'd seen in her dream. And I, I had one experience of her prevoyance. She lived with her son, who worked as a troubleshooter for International Caterpillar. And he never knew where his next assignment was going to be, because the company would wait till there was a crisis, and then they'd send him somewhere else, usually in Europe. And he told me, once told me, he said, I never know where I'm going, but mom knows a long time before I know, before the company tells me. She dreams it, and she knows it. And during their last months in Antwerp, his mother, Mrs. Johnson, told me she had a dream that they were next going to be summoned to a small town outside of London, that she could see the house they were going to live in, which she described to me, and she had begun knitting curtains for the window in the room that she saw was going to be her bedroom in that home. And sure enough, a few months later, they got the news that an emergency had arisen north of London. They were sent there. The house, and she sent me a picture of it, was exactly as she had described it, and the curtains fit perfectly on the window in her bedroom. Now, I have a cassette tape uh, of Mrs. Johnson telling me about these kinds of experiences. She, it's about an hour long, just telling me one after the other, these kinds of experiences that she had. I have no, no question that her prevoyance was, was real. But this was not the most dramatic experience that I had with her. That occurred on the morning of February 26, 1967, uh, the day of the birth of my second child. My wife was expecting our second child, and I was very anxious. Because when we were first dating, and we lived in Paris in 1961, on a whim, we went into the trailer of a fortune teller at a local fair. And she read my wife's palm my wife-to-be at that point, and she said, I can see it clearly in the lines of your hand. You are going to have one child, and that child will be a boy. Well, three years later, our first son, Andreas, was born. But as we got close to the birth of the second child, I kept remembering the words of this fortune teller and kept thinking, if she was right, there won't be a second child, or something's going to happen. She said, one child. So I was afraid, though I, I didn't share my fears with my wife. On the morning of February 26, our second son, Christopher, was born at like 5 a.m. It was a Sunday morning, and I had to preach at the church later that morning. And while the birth went fine, I was still anxious about what might happen to this 
second, to our second child. When I arrived at the church an hour before the service, Mrs. Johnson, the psychic woman, was standing on the steps waiting for me. No one at the church yet knew about the birth of the child. And she said, I sensed that you're feeling very troubled, and I brought something that I think will help you. And she handed me a new, just released translation of the Bible that was called Good News for Modern Man. It was very different from previous translations. Later that day, after church, alone at home and still feeling quite anxious, I took the Bible she had given me and intensely praying for guidance, I've never done this before or since, opened the Bible and took my finger and just put it on the page. It landed on a passage from the book of John which is interpreted this way only in this particular translation. And the passage read, referring to the birth of Jesus, the woman has conceived, the child is born, mother and child are fine. Now you can imagine what I was feeling. <laughs> My anxiety lifted immediately. Now, I don't pretend that this was a message from God or some undeniable proof of transcendence. And someday there may be some scientific explanation for why such things can happen given how the brain works and how our thoughts and feelings are transmitted. But certainly, at the very least, these kinds of experiences help me to believe that there's so much more to this world than our conscious brains can ever take in or process. The realm of the spiritual can break in in unexpected ways to challenge our conscious understanding of ourselves and of the world we live in. The mind is a wonderful thing. The brain is an incredibly complex, mysterious organ which we're only beginning to understand. And the spirit, however we may understand that, whether we call it Dharmakaya Buddha, Jesus, God, Jehovah, Allah, collective unconscious, is also very wonderful and mysterious. There's so much more to mind and spirit, and spirit than we can begin to understand. I think we will doubtless continue to desire to find some answers or proof of meaning and transcendence, and sometimes things will happen that will shake up our inner world and reinforce the mystery of it all. But essentially, there are no definitive answers. There are no proofs, and uncertainty and doubt, I think, remain an inevitable part of our spiritual search and our journey. But I think we can learn to live with that uncertainty through meditation and self-awareness, such as we do here. We can increasingly understand that the realm of the spiritual is not elusive and distant. It is with us and within us at all times. There's a mythical story that's found in the mythologies of most cultures about a man who traveled throughout the world trying to find his treasure. He sailed the seven seas, went to every continent, but in the end, he discovered that the treasure was buried beneath his bed in the home where he had begun his journey. The mind does not have to go to great lengths to try to find the spirit because the spirit is already inherent within the mind. Mind and spirit, I'm convinced, are one. And it's my belief that each time we inhale and exhale in meditation, we come a little closer to grasping this reality. Thank you for listening. <laughs>